Good day and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies hosted by Thara Anjaria out of Bombay, India. Our guest today is Eugenia Herbert and she is going to take us to the tropical and not so tropical gardens of the Indian subcontinent. Well, those gardens planted or restored by the British anyway. Everyone knows the story of the Indian civilian who had to plant English flowers in flower pots so he could take them along when he was invariably transferred to yet another station. Everyone knows how landscapes were crafted and designed to evoke not just home but imperial grandeur. Austere stretches of lawn leading up to impressive edifices are characteristic of the period. But more than that, Eugenia is going to tell us how one British viceroy in particular painstakingly restored the Taj Mahal and its gardens with spectacular results, but how the final restored product was very different from what it would have been in the days of those who built it. Good morning, Professor Herbert. Good morning to you. Oh, and uh, thank you very much for doing this for the New Books Network. It's a pleasure to have you with us today. Um, and I'm sure this is a very offbeat book, and I'm sure it's going to be very interesting for our readers. Good, good, and for me too. Yeah. So, could you tell us something about yourself and your career to date, because you've had a long career? <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes. It, it it looks a little curious too, but I, I think in retrospect, there was always a connection. I, I worked in African history for many years, although my PhD was in European history, but I won't go that that far back. Anyway, I was I was working in African history and for a long time I worked on the history of African metallurgy because it seems to be a way to tie in so many aspects of the history. But then by the early 1990s I'd done a lot of field work in Africa with metallurgists, uh, smelters, uh, copper workers, brass casters, that sort of thing. By the early 1990s, everyone who remembered the indigenous methods had died. So I was looking around for a way to continue research in Africa, and I realized that a lot of my sources for that had been, in fact, colonial officials who were curious about things. And I got interested particularly through one contact who had, had written a fascinating article about a reconstruction. And I started looking at colonial culture in British Africa and did a book that came out in 2002 about late colonialism in the Upper Zambezi. And in the course of reading lots of memoirs and letters, I was struck by the fact how important gardens were. And I guess I hadn't, hadn't really registered that, of course, they would be. There were lots of reasons. But then uh, through uh, an old college friend, I became interested in India, which I'm afraid I knew very little about before that. And I thought, well, if gardens were so important and colonial culture in Africa, which was so much shorter and involved so many fewer people, what about India? And so that that was the reason for my focus on the colonial gardens and, and the gardens as a kind of microcosm of the evolution of British colonial culture in India. And of course, once I got started, it went off in all sorts of directions, which I really enjoyed tremendously and it gave me an opportunity to visit India and every trip seemed to be more fascinating than the last. 
so there there was a kind of bridge between my researches in Africa and in India, and the gardens just sort of jump out at you when you look. There, there's hardly a memoir, hardly a set of letters that doesn't refer to gardens. They're just everywhere. The domestic gardens, the public gardens, the botanical gardens, the hill station gardens, you know, you so, you've seen where, where it led. And I had no idea at the beginning, of course, I thought there might be one one essay or article that would be interesting. And I thought it would mostly focus on nostalgia. And of course, nostalgia is only one dimension, many more, I think, to it. So that's sort of how I ended up with that. Um, yeah. Is that, is that, is that reasonable? <laughs> Um, yeah, so, but I think this is something that has really not been researched before, so how did this book take shape? Well, yes, it, exactly. It, it took shape uh, really um, almost serendipitously. That is, one topic led to another when uh, when I, I guess it was the first trip to India in 2003, mm-hmm. when I, of course, visited the Taj Mahal, and then mm-hmm. I was interested in the origins of the Taj Mahal, especially the whole Mughal tradition where the gardens were yeah. really the starting point. And then the architectural features came later. But from the West, at least, most people look at architecture and then look at the setting. But that was yeah, exactly. the Mughal aesthetic. And then, of course, looking, there's so much documentation, so many illustrations from the 1780s on. Uh, of the Taj Mahal right through to, the, to of course, the present and the, the Curzon, and you know the whole Curzon episode, I think, from your own work and his interest. And then visiting other sites like Kajarao or Sarnath, I realized that there is a basic problem. You have to landscape them, or at least people figure you do, and yet you also have to reckon that there are going to be hundreds of thousands, case of Taj, millions of visitors, and how do you reconcile that? And I think that that uh, Curzon, of course, couldn't have anticipated the flood of tourists now. So part of his restoration, oops, mm-hmm. I don't want that. I'm going to get that. Uh, part of his restoration was his own aesthetic, and part of it was the recognition that this was going to have an entirely different use. The Mughals, after all, did not support public gardens. They didn't let people into the Taj Gardens except on the anniversary mm-hmm. of Taj Mahal's death. So there's a whole, it's not only aesthetics, it's also the changing use, the changing conceptions of these spaces. And when a monument becomes a public park, it's a whole different animal. Anyway, and but of course, then, of course, you can't start looking at British culture without the hill stations. The mm-hmm. So one thing sort of followed from another. And that was the fun of, of course, to see, see where it was going to go, which I had no idea when I began. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, actually, uh, could you start off by telling us something, you know, about, uh, well, the setting, the setting to which the British in India came, the kind of, uh, well, horticultural tradition they encountered. I mean, their first, like, interactions with the Indian landscaping scene. Yes, well, of course, the, the, the presidency cities, I don't think, well, I, uh, the earliest uh, uh, factory was in Surat, and there they did encounter, I think, an extension of the Mughal tradition in the extreme northwest uh, corner uh, uh, there, because James Forbes does refer to gardens there. He doesn't give a great deal of description, but I suspect that they were 
based that they were geometric and probably walled. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's not clear. I think that the British had very little understanding of the role of gardens in Hindu culture. I think they sort of thought of the 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 Mughal gardens stood out because of their ge- geometry, and that would have been clear. But Hindu gardens, I think they thought of as just sort of a mass of shrubs. There's not many descriptions of those early on, and of course, it wasn't until William Jones that they really had a, a way into the literature, into mm-hmm. the dramas of Kalidasa and some of the other literature that brings out the whole courtly tradition of gardens and the scented garden and the seductions of the garden, that sort of thing. But I think that was later in coming. So I think at first they had somewhat Babur's reaction that this was a land of chaos and runaway exotics and they needed to tame them rather than a sense of, of a, a non-Mughal tradition of gardening. But uh, you say that the earliest gardens, you know, they were actually established in the metropole in, in an urban space like Calcutta, for example, or Bombay. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of interesting because that's not really what happened with the Mughals, I think. No, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yes, yes. And, and, and of course, Madras, uh, people sort of forget, I think, the importance of Madras. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it became overshadowed by Calcutta and then Bombay. But the garden house tradition was very much the extension of England where you would have a house in the city and then you would have a place in the country. And especially it would show you off that you had made it if you could afford to be a, a landed gentry. And uh, so I think I think that, that Madras becomes sort of the prototype for the garden house, which is then uh, followed in Calcutta even more splendidly. And to some extent in Bombay, but it was harder to get outside of Bombay because of the geography. You're you're in Bombay now, right? In Mumbai. Um, yeah. And actually, the botanical gardens they still exist, you know. But I think they're part of the zoo now. But that's not the case with Calcutta because I think the Calcutta gardens are still very famous. They're very famous and still very expensive. Yes, I I had the feeling when I was there a couple of years ago that they are. They're suffering a bit from lack of funding, but everything else is too. Uh, but they're still well kept up, and they're reasonably well kept up, and you know, lots of people visit them. Yeah, yeah, and of course, botanical gardens had very practical uses, with the whole emphasis in the late 18th century on useful knowledge. That mm-hmm. botany, and people sort of forget that botany was the queen of the sciences until it was replaced in the 19th century by geology and mm-hmm. much later by physics and others. And it did have so many practical ramifications because if you understood the natural world, you would find all sorts of mm-hmm. useful plants. And early on, I think more than later, the British appreciated the botanical knowledge that Indians had. They didn't consider themselves superior, and, and botanists would really make a point of getting in touch with people with herbal knowledge and then trying to make catalogs of the plants and their uses. And, of course, herbal, herbal medicine was common in Europe, too. But I think they recognized that in many ways the the Indian knowledge of herbal remedies was in advance of of Europe. Mm -hmm. I think that changed so much in the 19th century where there's such a sense of superiority coming in and that they were more scientific and all that. But Mm -hmm. I think also what interested me 
was the seed change over time. And there is there is there's change in the garden traditions from the garden house to the bungalow garden that that corresponds, of course, with the changing administration from the from the commercial empire to the administrative empire. All those uh, and many more people coming. And then later, as people become more transient, too, there's a change. So so I, I think the historian is always looking for how things change and not just for a, a model that, uh, that that is uh, set in time. And then, uh, sorry. So I was just wondering, I mean, it's like sometime around the mid 18th century or the early 19th century, that's when the English kind of, you know, dropped off the more Indianizing, well, the more Indianizing ways. I mean, there's an added emphasis on being English, you know, and not actually conforming to native customs. So was this the time when like the tradition of like planting, you know, gardens that were very, you know, visibly English took hold? I think I think there is a rough parallel with that. Yes, and the interesting thing then, the interesting point then become the exceptions, because I think the mode was to try to replicate England more and more. Yeah, you know, say the sort of corresponding to the period where there there are fewer of the white moguls, as Dalrymple would call them, and more and more uh, separation of of the English from Indian culture. But then you find exceptions. I mean, you find people like Fanny Parks. And I think the exceptions were especially people who were there a long time and who had a kind of built in curiosity. I mean, I like Fanny Parker, uh, Parks because she comes with all the Memsaib pre- prejudices at first. And then the more she travels, the more she comes caught up in, in India. And it becomes very hard for her to go back home. And it, for, her focus is so much on the natural world as well as on people. And I think there are others like that. So that there's always a kind of stereotype, but then the exceptions are are the fun or the people, even somebody who was uh, very much in the mold later, say Lady Beatrix Stanley. And I had some uh, insights into her because I know her grandson in, in England that she she was very much cocooned in, in official society. And yet because she had a great interest, which a lot of women did, in botany. She made a list of the plants that would grow and the plants that wouldn't grow. And she said, you're just silly to try to grow everything there. And, and, and she was aware that the climate of Madras was quite different from the climate of Delhi, too, which people mm-hmm. from outside would have thought, well, they're the same. But, of course, they aren't at all. Uh, so what was the supply chain situation here? Yeah, I mean, how did people import, like, you know, English seeds and English plants? I mean, was, was there some kind of official, like, gardening suppliers oh, or something? Yes, yes. There were, there were big importers, yes. And what mm-hmm. people discovered, of course, they thought once they had planted English seeds, then they could make their own seeds. But there seemed to be a, ge- a degeneration so that you mm-hmm. really couldn't do that, which was great for the importers because they had a constant mar- market. At first, it was very hard to import seeds because of the long sea voyage and they would rot and get moldy. And so it was not all that easy. I think later it did become easier um, to, for, for the plants to survive. And then people took advantage of it and would grow things. It, it, you do find a lot of co- conflicting views. Some people saying, oh, I just gave up. I just couldn't get anything. <laughs> and other people say, well, yes, you could. but." Uh, Calcutta, I think, was pretty hard to have an English garden. And that's why I just love people like Lady Canning, who said, 
India should be India. And, and she just was furious when she would see mm-hmm. the places that tried to mimic, mimic Hyde Park or others. And, and in Barrackpur, she didn't want it to look like an English country estate. Mm-hmm. So, it, so I think it's the exceptions that are kind of the fun, which doesn't deny that, I mean, who knows, you can't quant- make a quantitative uh, analysis, but I'm sure for many there was, it was part of their the, mm-hmm. the expatriate mentality and living cocoon and societies that became more and more separate, especially after 57, 58, after the uprising. Mm-hmm. And no doubt that that is part of the reaction against uh, India uh, mm-hmm. reflected itself in the gardens and the parks. But by that time, of course, a lot of the Indians, mm-hmm. princes and others, are mimicking mm-hmm. the British. So mm-hmm. it reinforces it. So that was just in terms of uh, the kind of well flora that they used. Uh, you mentioned a lot about uh, you know trends in gardening, trends in landscaping. Could you tell us something about that? Yes, I think what I expected to find more was uh, because the uh, the garden history of England escalates in a way. In the late nineteenth century with the, the Cape Fully Brown and. Uh, you know, the, the, the landscape, the, the natural landscape, which isn't natural at all. But then by the 19th century, it is just a cascade because of the intense historicism. There's the, the mode for the English garden and then the reaction against that and the topiary and the statuary, all of these competing views. And I don't find much reflection of that in India. And I think it's because, for one thing, uh, people... The, there was a, for ordinary Indian uh, uh, people in the Indian Civil Service. There was a turn; they kept being moved, so you couldn't do anything too elaborate. You couldn't afford to. It's, it's very expensive, of course, to establish a garden. So I think they sort of concentrated on essentials and didn't worry about following the modes. I think also there was the inevitable time lag too. They didn't quite know what the latest battles were about, and they found some things which they tried to mimic, like the herbaceous border. Just mm-hmm. didn't work. You just couldn't get things to bloom in the proper sequence. Mm-hmm. It's important. That's that's late nineteenth century. But uh, uh, but even the the carpet gardening, all of that that depended on color combinations and things, it just didn't work. So I think it was a combination of of not feeling it was worth the effort, of knowing you were going to be transient, and who knows mm-hmm. what. So there's much less of that than I sort of expected, and the reasons in, in the end seem pretty logical why they wouldn't try to mimic that those things. And, and it just seemed less important, I'm sure, too, to them. You tried to get something to grow that you really liked, and uh, you know, if you could get some flowers to grow, and, and, and an acceptance that you would have to plant Indian uh, shrubs and flowering trees, that kind of thing in your garden, because you certainly couldn't have British trees. That that was mm-hmm. a given. The flowers were a little more um, problematic. Mm-hmm. So obviously hill stations were the major site of activity for all this, I think. Yes, yes. And it was certainly one of the attractions of the hill station. Mm-hmm. What is sort of appalling when you read accounts is that so many of the flowers that had become familiar, many of them, of course, uh, were imports into England, were growing wild in the hill stations, and they were just, uh, they just ravaged the hillside, mm-hmm. digging them up to plant in their gardens. And that's, mm-hmm. in retrospect, just appalling that they could go out. Of course, they would have their their shivering servants digging them up and then planting them in their gardens. Of course, they would grow. 
but it left very little growing wild after a while. And um, and the hill the, the hill stations, I think, were were awfully rainy, but that doesn't seem to have bothered the English because they were used to it. And of course, they were precipitous too. The accounts are really quite amusing of trying to find the level bit. So that that was the drawback. You could get anything to grow if you had enough flat ground to grow it on, and if you could keep the invading quid out. Um, but uh, but the hill stations loomed so large by already 1830s, 40s, and then when the Schimmel became the official sovereign capital in 1860s. So yes, I think they are very and they, and, and they intensified the Englishness of people's responses, if anything. And and some uh, there again, they're the exception. Some people, did, Lady Canning, hated Shimla. Um, Others did, of course, Curzon didn't like Shimla. He retreated to, uh, to as you know, well, partly because you couldn't get away from, I'm sure, from shop talk all the time. And the what Kipling brings out so much, the, the backbiting and the gossip, it must have been impossible. And people were so conscious of status, you couldn't really get away unless you moved had to go to a, a place farther out than Shimla. Um, apart from Shimla, could you tell us something about the, the hill station, the, thing, the ones in South India, the ones in Western India? Yes, well, of course, Udi was different in a way, and it was more like England because it's not the rugged foothills of, of the Himalayas. And I think that was sort of the for, for people within range from... Bombay, well, Bombay tended to have its own. And I haven't been to, to some of the ones uh, 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 around Pune and in the Western Ghats, but but uh, Udi does strike me as much more suitable for those who could get there if you really wanted a kind of English environment. Mm-hmm. But of course, uh, then uh, something else that I, I didn't realize till I was reading was that there was so much deforestation in Sudi because of the expanding population. There had just been the, 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 the tribal peoples in the hills, but when you start bringing in massive numbers of people and all that goes with them and the deforestation, then the that probably ill-guided attempt to reforest, but using quick-growing Australian trees mm-hmm. so that it changed the, the ecology and it's neither English nor Indian. Um, and and Udi, it's funny. Uh, I was in Udi also in 2003, and to me now it has a kind of lack of center and lack of focus. And I don't know if that was always true. It's sort of hard, sorry. It's not like the mall in the in Shimla where you know where the center of things is. It's sort of the hills and the valleys in between. And uh, it, it's it still strikes me as pockets of Englishness. The race course so that could be Indian too, but places like the, the the Savoy Hotel and such that are still very English, um, and of course it's much changed by tea, which was later late uh, late nineteenth century, and the market gardening, so that uh, it's it's a little hard to read back precisely how it would have looked at the height of the Raj. The, I mean, you have uh, um, some watercolors from the 1840s and 50s and Lady Canning's descriptions, others as well there. 
but it, in a way it was the ideal hill station because it was more manageable than the Himalayas. Then, and Darjeeling too. I, it, it is it's curious as 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 Lady Canning said why Shimla became the official summer capital instead of Darjeeling, which is so much closer to Calcutta and uh, would have served just as well. It, and the best explanation seems to have been that the box walls got there first and the officials were not going to mix with them because I'm not sh- the, the journey was so much shorter, even though you did have to go through that pestilential uh, stretch of the Chirai. But but Shimla is an ungodly distance from Calcutta. It just boggles oh, yeah. my mind that they would go with their huge trains and then the poor servants who were completely unprepared for the cold. It was, I think, one of the most amazing phenomena <laughs> that I can imagine. I don't know if there are even parallels of that kind of mass migration and the, the foolhardiness of it, the wastefulness and the expense. And yet, I took it. Of course, the, the Mughals would move en masse to, to Kashmir with just as many people as the British, but they didn't take grand pianos along, I don't think. Yeah, that's actually quite funny when you come to think about it. I mean, similar, it's really far away. But uh, the one thing I was interested in, you mentioned that uh, a lot of, like, you know, Australian trees were imported into Uti. I mean, what is the reason behind this? Well, I think, of course, the, by that time, the British had the whole empire to draw on. And I think mm-hmm. that they, they grew fast, for one thing. and mm-hmm. But I don't know the actual reason, but I, I, I'm not... It may have been even more individual that the people who were involved knew Australia because otherwise you'd think they would have found other trees that would grow. But uh, I think it's most likely that because of the imperial connections, they they knew those gum trees and they knew they would grow in that environment. But uh, going back to Simla, I mean, a lot of people seem to have disliked it pretty much. Yes, they do. Yeah. And you think even, and yet they kept going. Well, you sort of yeah. have to be seen there, and officials had to go, I think, once it became the official. I mean, there was nobody left in Calcutta, so you kind of had to go there. But uh, it, it does sound most unpleasant. And for wives, just the endless round of parties with the same people got to be more of them eventually. But at first, it was just the same handful of people day after day. And uh, I, I can't met it. It was not great even being a mem saeb. I would think they must have been bored to death. They weren't allowed to do anything. Fortunately, some of them had interests like botany, uh, but very few had any language skills, I think, to be able to communicate. Um, the, there were some exceptions, obviously, but it must have been a privileged but utterly boring life. And I think Curzon had quite a lot to say about Simla. Yes, he did. Well, you would know more about that. Why did he hate it so much? Oh, I don't know. I think he just found it stifling. <laughs> That's what he says. <laughs> yeah, so he retreated to... <laughs> and actually, in a way, I just think it was a lack of space. But uh, when you think about it, I mean, as a viceroy, he would have been... Surrounded by pretty much the same people, whether he was in Calcutta, whether he was in Simla. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes, and, uh, and of course the work never let up, and the yes. boxes kept arriving. I'm sure, but 
And of course, he he had the other reason: his uh, dislike of Kitchener, who was over on the next hill, right? So that, that, okay. that he and he seemed to been bothered more by Kitchener's presence than Kitchener by Curzon's, <laughs> or that's the impression I had. But it wasn't really big enough for the two of them. So in that way, it's surprising that Curzon didn't, didn't really make any alterations to Simla. No, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yes. He he, he wasn't going to. Whereas he did, of course, cut to the to the governor's uh, uh, to, to to government house in Calcutta. That because he loved Calcutta. Of course, that's that's interesting too. And you must have found out more about that. That he was one of the few people who genuinely loved Calcutta, and that certainly comes out in his fury at the <laughs> moving the capital to Delhi. Um, but I, I I think he would. If he'd been able, I think he would have stayed right through the summer in Calcutta, don't you? Of course, his poor wife suffered. But, um, yeah, definitely. I mean, she said, I mean, India would kill her. And in a way, I suppose it did. It did. It certainly did. Yes, I think it was more than just the drains when she got back. Yeah. But uh, despite all that, I mean, cousin, again, well, apart from the Victoria Memorial, he concentrated most of his energies on Agra and obviously on the Taj complex. Yes, yes, and 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 of course on um, the ancient monuments. Considering yeah. how many ancient monuments there are, it, certainly his great love was Agra. But it's amazing how many he he tried to encompass in the archaeological survey of India. I mean, he did realize what a stupendous job it was. Mm-hmm. I think what's too bad is that he either didn't try or wasn't able to do more. In getting those awful barracks out of the Red Fort in Delhi, because I think they're, you know, they're such an eyesore. Maybe, maybe it was because Agra was more important to him, and there was a Red Fort there, and he didn't have to worry about the one. Although, of course, he did when when he had the uh, the Durbar, he did then clear out some of that so that they could have that grand finale at the uh, Diwanikas. There, but he didn't worry about the backdrop of all those awful barracks. But of course, maybe that would have meant tangling with Kitchener again. I don't know. (laughs) That could tell us something about, you know, Curzon and the Taj because that's actually some. I mean, everybody knows Curzon restored Taj, but nobody really goes into the garden aspect of it. Right. And that was such fun because I think uh, there are a lot of a fair number of word descriptions from the time that it was well going back even farther it's, it's been quite uh well established the whole tradition of the riverfront garden uh mm-hmm. and other people have done a wonderful job in delineating what gardens meant in Mughal culture and what they looked like and then when the Taj gardens themselves were being laid out there are a couple of descriptions along the way and then Bernier's description in 1660 which is fairly complete and probably fairly accurate the word description and then already in the of course then the Mughals fell on hard times in the first half of the 18th century but when the British uh, artists start coming through there's just a wonderful range of illustrations, some well-known like Hodges and the Daniels and others, but just about everybody wanted to paint the Taj Mahal. So there's a wonderful record, more than I could reproduce in the book, but I've done a couple of readings and I've been able to show more of them. 
so that by the time the the gardens by the by the the time Curzon first visited in 1887-88, it was everything had grown and grown almost too much, so that it must have been incredibly dense. But also a lot of it was fruit orchard with good reason. This was part and parcel the practicality of the Mogul Garden. You would use the sale of fruit to defray the cost of upkeep. And it does appear that the British, well, I guess you can, it was contradictory. The British maintained the Taj, unlike a lot of other monuments, pretty well through the 19th century. It seems to be a myth that they really did uh, dismantle uh, some of it or that Bentinck was going to sell off the marbles or anything. Mm-hmm. But they did use the ground in ways that shock us. They would have picnics and parties and revelries of all sorts, including gatherings right up on the platform of the tomb itself. But they seem to have kept up the garden. And when Curzon's Kur- journal, you probably read that in the course of your work, he just can't stop going back to the Taj. And, and his friend, Sinjin Brodick, I think, got a little bored. And he would go at sunset. He would go at sunrise, keep going, and just ecstatic about it. And he praises the gardens, which he thinks, of course, the, entirely the work of the British gardener. But in any case, he finds no fault with the upkeep at that point and with the condition of, of the monument itself. And that's why I found it so startling when he becomes viceroy that one of the first things he says is we've got to clear this place. And, of course, the effect would have been entirely different. There are descriptions before it was landscaped. Uh, There's Russell's description when he took the Prince of Wales through in, in 76 that instead of having the clear vista from the entrance from the Taj Gaj, the clear vista your eyes following that central channel and the fountains right down to the platform and the tomb itself, there would have been an element of mystery and surprise, which would have been, uh, I don't know if it would have been calculated by the original landscapers or not. I don't think so. But so that you entered, you saw all of these trees, you were led down this path, and then suddenly you get to the point where the vista opens up. And the drama of that which some people thought was superb, intended or not, that that's the way it should have been seen. It was then just the miracle of the Taj and the brilliance of the white against the, against the sky. And then, But Curzon, who had loved it so much the way it was in, in the late 80s, apparently didn't want that. And he wanted it to be open. He wanted to control the prospect that people would see, that they would come in and they would come in from the outside, not knowing. And then the surprise would be the minute they stepped through the Taj Gange. And then they, their eyes would be directed. And it didn't much matter what was on the side. Well, he, he did focus a lot on the plantings, especially the cypresses, along that main channel between the Taj Gange and the tomb. And he kept changing the plant. He, he was a pain in the neck. <laughs> Everybody would groan when he came through because... He would say, no, I didn't say to do it this way, do it that way. And they felt they had to run and do it. But I think all of that was to guide the eye the way, exactly the way that he thought it should go. And he wasn't interested in flowers, which is kind of interesting. He kept the quadrants, of course, but he didn't worry that much. Well, the main thing that is lost, and, and he, he, you have to give him credit that he he did realize that 
there would be a lot of people and you had to figure out how to protect the whole setting. There were lots of people didn't didn't anticipate three million, of course. But it seems to me that he had no sensitivity to the the complex. He was thinking just in visual terms. And he he read Bernier. He read these other sources. Uh, hard to know how much he, he read uh, beyond the obvious. He does refer to Bernier and, and some of the others. But he doesn't seem to have cared at all about the sense of smell and sound, which was so important, especially smell. But when you have all of those fruit trees, you also have lots of birds. So that ideally it would have been just a feast of, for the senses. And that's not true now. Uh, and times I, I've asked people whatever they've been to visit the Taj Mahal, I say, what do you remember of the gardens? And they scratch their heads and they say, well, it was just a setting. They don't remember anything in particular. And I think that's uh, that's a, a great loss because they don't even realize they're in a Mughal garden. And in fact, one of the great Mughal gardens, after all, it would have been one of the climactic gardens under Shah Jahan, who was so obsessed with gardens. And then the tomb garden uh, as, as as the quintessential Mughal garden as it evolved in the, the in the that first century or century in a bit of Mughal rule. So I think it's too bad that that, that is lost. In in a way, it's it's a dilemma now. And of course, there have been these awful attempts to commercialize the Taj even more and the surrounding things and, and misguided attempts by landscape uh, departments and such. But uh, I I don't think you could go back to a Mughal garden and still have the volume of tourists you have now. It couldn't accommodate them. So you're, you're in a bind more than I think Curzon was conscious of. I think it was much more his own aesthetic and his own uh, focus on architecture rather than garden per se that was important in his restoration. And I think you see that in other sites, too, where there is there are the walks, there are the lawns, there are a few shade trees, but there's not uh, any attempt to... Of course, in Hindu sites like Hyderabad, nobody has a clue how they would have been landscaped, but I think there would have been a lot of temple flowers growing there. One of the interesting things about Curzon was that, I mean, one of his biographers noted that he had this idea that a landscaped garden or a landscaped environment was much better than something that was, you know, in a more natural state. So was this something that could have influenced, you know, his restoration of the Taj? Yes, I'm sure. Yes, yes. And uh, when you go to Kettleston, it's in a kind of a time warp because it's still... Uh, it's still that pseudo natural environment of the rolling hills, the stream that has been mm-hmm. redirected just the right way, the sheep there. And there is a little flower garden, but it doesn't amount to much. And I, I don't think it's been changed much. It was interesting that he did consult Edwin Lutyens in the twenties about redoing the garden, but they did, it, it never came to anything. So, uh, I, so so I, I think, yeah, I, I think he was not that interested in, in landscape. Of course, he felt he had every right because because landscapes change. You, you could fix architecture the way it was, but landscapes are going to change anyway because things grow. So I think he was trying to think of something that would maintain itself as he uh, as he wanted it as long as possible. And it has been kept up pretty much that way. 
I mean, the, the illustrations from 1918-19, the, the photographs are pretty similar to the way it looks now. Um, so, um, it's uh, going on to the building of Delhi. Obviously, this was the capital that Curzon hated, but um, this was <laughs> something that... <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, what is the, a certain amount of change in British attitudes towards, uh, you know, landscaping the Indian space, you know, between Curzon and the building of Delhi? Yes. Um, yes, the... Uh, it, they, they, of course, they did inherit a lot of gardens there, but they did seem to think of gardens much more some that you would go for your evening outing and you would drive around. And, uh, and of course, Lady Willingdon, who put her stamp on so many things. In, in, in the funny way, I think what jumps out at you now so much more than the Gardens in Delhi are the roundabouts in New Delhi proper, that is in the posher sections, and the landscaping along those avenues where there are the the the, the well-to-do houses, those uh, colonies where the civil servants live, where the diplomatic corps live, and the the landscaping of those, and then and then the flowers around or the flowering trees, especially along there. Uh, and, but it is interesting, of course, that the Viceroy's house, Rastapati Bhavan, and did end up with a so-called Mughal garden. And I think that was, again, the influence of Lady uh, uh, Harding, who – and there, there, there's another one. She, she uh, obviously took a, a real interest in Indian gardens. She didn't want to replicate Buckingham Palace or one of those. And I think, and and it seems pretty clear that she was familiar with the work of Constance Villiers Stewart, who was making, uh, in her history, was also very much a an agenda for restoring the old garden craft, the Indian knowledge, and making clear to people what it consisted of. It, it really was the first comprehensive work, and I think tremendously important in his time. And she was the wife of an official. So there again, you find one of these exceptions, somebody who really was interested in looking at Indian traditions for their own sake and then taking an activist role to see if they'd be preserved. And, and she very much hoped that that New Delhi would incorporate a lot of that, including restoration of things that had been just devastated in, uh, in old Delhi. And I think what was what was very sad was the destruction of Chandni Chowk and those things in Old Delhi, as well as the creation of New Delhi, which, for all local garden talk, there is really essentially a British garden city, more than any British garden city that ever got built, because nobody ever had the free hand and the resources that that Kers, uh, that um, Lutyens had. It is really quite. Uh, it's extraordinary because there are garden cities, but they're very modest in England and usually compromised by competing interests. And so, and, and the gardens, I was thinking of the older gardens, <coughs> the Lodi Gardens and others that, that I'm familiar with. Well, of course, the, the, so many of them are monuments as well as gardens. Uh, Humayun's tomb, the Lodi Gardens, they're, they're all built around tombs. And there, I think the uh, restoration has been very much along the lines of the Taj with gravel paths and 
some trees and um, well, in some cases running water. But last time I was there, that Humayun Sum didn't even have any running water in the channels. I think it was before the Commonwealth Games, and I think they were saving up for the Commonwealth Games to finally restore the fountains and the channels then. But and the Red Fort <coughs> gardens too are mostly pretty much lawn and a few shade trees. <coughs> and, and even when they've restored them, they haven't raised the paths the same way. You don't get the the sense of looking down on a pattern that you would have in a mogul garden. That you just look down on grass essentially. Um, you mentioned the term garden imperialism in the closing chapter. Yeah. Um, what exactly uh, do you see in that? Because you mentioned that it was not just the British, but it was also other imperial powers who went about creating their own gardens. <coughs> and I mean, uh, what were the differences, let's say, between British gardens in India and maybe like, you know, British gardens elsewhere in other colonies? Yeah, I well, I think because India was <clears throat> the jewel in the crown that you find everything in its most extreme form in India because they were there longer than other places. There are many more of them. And it was so important to them. But botanical, I've had friends say, oh, you should see the botanical gardens in Sydney. And I've seen the, the gardens in Vancouver, say. And it's a lot the same sort of thing that where they went. And first it was domestic gardens, then it would be botanical gardens and parks, all of those following their their aesthetic, because that especially uh, it was it was the their urban aesthetic. They couldn't imagine a city without parks. And I think that's very commendable. And it, and it strikes me that that Indians, at least, have I've never been to Australia, but. Indians appreciate the parks, the, whether it's the uh, um, the Raj path on, on a sunny with the with the green swords on the side and the water and the the paths for jogging or horseback riding that sort of thing that they have imported a whole uh, kind of a concept of leisure for one thing and leisure focused on nature or in an urban setting it becomes parks if you can't get out of the city and the, it's harder and harder to get out of the city. So I think that's a common phenomenon, but I do think it's writ large in India. Because it was and, obviously, and, and uh, obviously uh, the whole uh, British style of gardening, it left a considerable legacy in terms of how ordinary Indians went about uh, well, gardening. Yes, yes. Well, one of my favorites, and I haven't been able to meet her, it was mm-hmm. a chance encounter with her daughter-in-law, this uh, woman Sujaya, who's the retired civil servant. And I love her letters about how she had, growing up in the South of India, in Kerala, that she had loved British authors, Jane Austen, Daphne de Maurier, and others, so that she was steeped that literature and gardens went together in the English tradition, especially since the 19th century, 19th, 20th, and and then trying to grow them. And, of course, Kerala didn't have a tradition of English gardens at all. Uh, and, and, and as far as I can figure out, not that strong a colonial presence. It was only when she got to the north of India, to Delhi, where she was working, and then when they uh, acquired a, a, a place in Shimla, that she could really go to town, especially in Shimla, in creating an English garden. And I, 
I find it so nice when people can get beyond politics, when <laughs> I mean, you can separate some of those things that you're not you're not betraying, <laughs> you know, your country <laughs> by having an English by loving English flowers. And yeah. so I think didn't see the conflict. I, I just object that that if something good comes of the, the other horrors of something, that yeah. you can't make the most of it. You don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And, so and, and, of course, I love uh, Seth, and I love the figure of Mrs. Mahesh Kapoor in The Suitable Boy, because she is mm-hmm. so downtrodden, and mm-hmm. but he takes advantage of her. And yet, in the end, she triumphs. Her garden triumphs. Mm-hmm. Everybody else comes to bed, but not the garden. Um, so do you think your future research would look at something like this? Well, what I what I've been uh, working on now is uh, uh, Sri Lanka, British Ceylon, looking mm-hmm. at the role of of gardens there, and it, the differences are as interesting as the similarities because from the beginning it was a plantation economy, whereas plantation the the plantation wall had a very tricky position in British society and not very high up, but uh, from the beginning it was coffee and then tea, rubber, chinchona in Sri Lanka. So it's quite different. And there, uh, what I was focusing on is the role of the main botanical garden at Peridania as a resource. They had some extraordinary directors and of course they needed them because you hear they had this coffee boom and then the sun collapsed in the 1880s so that they were devastated and people were mortgaged to the hills. It was a little like what's going on now with like the defaults and that sort of thing. So I, I'm thinking of just doing an essay on Peridania and the creation of colonial culture in Sri Lanka and well in Ceylon as it was and contrasting it some with India and there, the, and the garden the gardens, the British gardens, they did have their gardens, and they had the equivalent of the hill stations in the in the hilly areas around Norelia, especially. So there are some parallels. I don't think I would do a whole book on that because I think that that there are just a couple of points to be made, and not not as many avenues to go down as with it seemed to be with a book on on India. But I think that's what I would look at because I I, I like this idea of a very concrete avenue into a larger cultural phenomenon and I think it fits there with the plantation economy but also the sidelight of then how people adapt how they create a way of life which interests me and their individuals okay so in that do you see any parallels emerging with the Dutch East Indies don't know that much about them they certainly had their gardens and they certainly had commercial interests growing out of them and of course over and over again they undercut what the British were doing too. Um, uh, Chinchona failed because the Java could produce it cheaper, uh, coffee to some extent and, uh, and and then rubber in Malaysia but though that was not Dutch. But uh, I, I, th- I think and there, there are descriptions too during the Dutch period in Ceylon of their residences, but one one point that some of the first the British arrived at the very end of the 18th century mark on is that the Dutch didn't want to go outside. They didn't have the sweeping verandas and the kind of permeability of English architecture eventually in India. They closed themselves in. 
so they would have some gardens, but uh, but I I don't know what there may be differences between Ceylon, Java, other areas that, that I, I I really haven't gone into that much. They certainly had gardens, and the French had gardens, no doubt about it. But I just don't think they loomed as large, and I because their imperial role was not as long lasting uh, or as sweeping as the British. So it's a matter of scale uh, to some extent. And I think there is something unique about the importance of gardens. Not that they are not important to many other peoples, but I think the British, with their obsession with gardens, uh, there's something unique about that that surpasses other countries. And people have great fun trying to speculate why, why they turn it into a moral issue, which I don't think the Dutch and the French did. But there's something morally uplifting and something good for your character about having a garden. Um, That was fascinating. That was amazing. But I'm afraid we've taken up a lot of your time now. So we are going to have to close this. But uh, thank you very much for doing this for the New Books Network. And uh, do keep us updated because we'd love to have you around again for some of your other work. Okie doke. Well, thanks so much. I've enjoyed it. It's been fun corresponding with you. So, Fox. A lovely podcast about an unregarded and unstudied facet of British life in India. Colonial gardening legacy persists yet in the official gardens and botanical gardens dotted across the subcontinent centers of power. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Goodbye.